good to be with all of you once again. And this morning we'll finish the message that we started last week, a message entitled, Some Thoughts on Walking in the Spirit. Uh, I'll start this morning by doing a really fast overview of last week. If you weren't here last week, haven't heard it, and, and what you hear this morning is of interest to you, you can go to our website, newlifeherford.com, and hear last week's message. Also, even if you were here last week, you might still want to go to the website. The diagram, Spirit Soul Body Diagram that I used last week is on the webpage. You can download it, print it out. So that's available to you. Um, also, uh, when today's message is posted on the website, you will also see an accompanying page of some recommended books, as well as I'll point you to some videos on YouTube by Dr. Carolyn Leaf. I'll be talking about her a little bit more here in a few minutes, but she was on the Kenneth Copeland program for about 20 episodes, more than 20 episodes, and they're very good on this subject we'll be covering today. So, uh, on the website, you'll see how to get to those videos if you'd like to. Last week, the focus, uh, I mentioned that we, this would be in two parts. I kind of likened it to an airport hub. We were flying to Dallas-Fort Worth last week to the hub so that then we could go to our real destination, which is Albuquerque. We needed to lay some groundwork on spirit, soul, body. That was the focus last week, and I actually will finish up just a little bit of that first thing this morning. Uh, before we can take off for Albuquerque. Several of you have mentioned that this morning. Uh, last week we covered a couple of main verses that tell us that you are a tripartite or three-part being. Spirit, soul, and body. And it's very important to, to know about that. So those two main scriptures made a clear distinction between soul and body, but there are lots of scriptures that talk about I'm, I'm saying soul and body, excuse me, it means spirit and soul. Uh, there are lots of scriptures that talk about the spirit and its role. There are other scriptures that talk about the soul. So the, the whole topic is very well supported in scripture. We also saw that your soul is where your mind, your will, and your emotions reside. The mind being separate from the brain, which is part of your body. Now, I made some pretty grand statements last week about how an understanding of this spirit-soul-body thing is so important that it would be hard to understand many topics of Scripture fully or to a greater extent without first grabbing hold of this spirit-soul-body concept. So I made some really grand statements. I'm going to revisit each one of those in a few minutes and uh, see if they make a little more sense today. We saw that the three-part nature uh, in which God made us is clearly portrayed in the story of what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, God said in Genesis 2, He told Adam, "In the Don't eat of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of garden and evil, for in the very day you eat of it, you'll surely die. But then we looked and we noticed their bodies didn't die that day. Adam went on to live over, to be over 900 and something years old, 930, I think. We also saw that their mind, will, and emotions were still very much active. In other words, their soul was still alive. So we concluded that it was their spirits that died on that day, and all of their descendants, including us, were born with dead spirits. 
We saw in Ephesians 2 that until we are born again, that is, born from above, that God's verdict of us is we are dead in trespasses and sins. So uh, that's a pretty, pretty strong statement that's made there in Ephesians chapter 2. We also looked at a story where, that Jesus told about a rich man, we don't know his name, and a beggar, we do know his name, Lazarus, uh, not the same one that Jesus raised from the dead. And when Jesus told the story, he told about these two men seeing each other frequently while they're, they were still on this earth, but then they both died, and they were in that place, uh, Hades, with the two parts. So even though their bodies were physically decaying in their graves, these two men were able to see each other, recognize each other, and communicate with each other. So we saw that God's definition of death is not the same as ours, and that the soul goes on after our physical bodies die. But what that story really told us is that the mind is separate from the brain. Because even while these two men's bodies were in their graves, the two men still had memories of their life on earth. So finally, we considered the fact that the will is one of the most important parts of us. Our will is where we make decisions and choose the course of actions we will take. So last week, we were able to give just a little bit of detail about spirit and soul, but didn't say much about the body. So today, I'm going to finish part one right now, and then we'll move on to part two. Excuse me for just a moment. Would you raise your hand if you've ever seen me wear this before? Okay, quite a few hands. All right. Marilyn and I did a little skit involving this to illustrate exchange. 42 days ago. So if you raised your hand, what that indicates is that when you walked out of this building 42 days ago, your brain was physically changed from the way it was when you walked into this building 42 days ago. And that change has lasted until now. That illustrates the fact that the memories in our brains are not just wisps of air or, or some unknown substance. Your memories are made up of physical structures in the brain. We're going to talk about how that happens here in just a moment. Those structures can be seen under a microscope, not while you're alive, but afterwards, They can be seen under a microscope, but while you're alive, their activity can be seen using modern medical equipment. Let's say you decide to memorize something, maybe a verse of Scripture. You make that decision in your soul, in your mind, in your will. The moment you set your mind on something, your brain begins to kick into gear. Your brain follows what your mind tells it. Your brain instructs your body to pick up your Bible, turn to the page where that verse is that you want to memorize. Your eyes 
pick up the image of dark shapes on a lighter page, transmit that to the brain. The brain turns those shapes, that information, into actual meaning, content meaning. And what happens then, your, your brain immediately begins collecting protein molecules together. It's starting to form a memory. Just like what happened when I wore that blue bath towel that I called a cape uh, six weeks ago. Uh, some protein molecules formed in your brain. So if you're remembering that, that little structure is still there. Um, well, I won't say any more about that. So anyway, you, you go over this verse a few times. Your, your brain's interpreting it for your mind, and your mind says, I want to memorize that. I really do. So the next day you go through that same process, more protein molecules begin to collect. That little structure gets bigger uh, and bigger. And uh, Dr. Carolyn Leaf, you heard me mention her a moment ago, she's a wonderful Christian woman who is also a brain scientist. She's written a, a wonderful book that talks about all this stuff, and she has a lot of good videos out on the Internet. But she explains that if you'll do what I just described for a few minutes every day for a certain number of days, and, and it's actually a very specific number of days that the brain requires to do this, then a long-term memory will form. Long-term meaning once that's set like that, if you went for weeks or maybe even months without even thinking of that verse, you would still be able to recite it word for word because that memory has stuck. Let me use this term. You have created a stronghold, a good stronghold in your brain, a physical change in the brain. The more you practice that verse, the bigger and bigger that little stronghold becomes. Now, I would almost bet that for some of you, when you heard the word stronghold just now, something else came to mind. We don't hear that word very often in our normal daily conversation. And when we do hear it, it's usually in the context of 2 Corinthians 10.4. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. If that verse came to mind, that means you have a stronghold where that, the memory of that verse is contained. So when your ears picked up the sound of my voice, converted that into signals that the brain then could convert to the content, when you heard that word stronghold, it activated another memory. It activated that memory where you had uh, stored about the word stronghold. We are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. It's phenomenal the way God made us. But you might be thinking, wait a second, that verse is talking about pulling down strongholds. You're talking about building them up. Well, there are good strongholds that we want to make stronger. There are bad strongholds that we do want to pull down. And that's another area where cutting-edge brain science is beginning to catch up with the Bible. Well, that part, that brief part talking about the body is... That will conclude part one of this. So we've now fully gotten what we need at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. We've, we've laid that foundation of body, soul, and spirit. And then where we're really headed is to talk about walking in the spirit. 
the first point for the second part of this message might seem so obvious to you that there's a danger you'll switch off your brain for a few minutes waiting for the next point to come up. But it's a little more subtle and a little more involved than you might think at first. The point is that you were designed. You were designed, spirit, soul, and body, by your Creator. Think carefully about the fact that you were designed. Um, I had the privilege of working for more than 31 years for three agencies of our federal government. Uh, In the first two of those, I was sometimes tasked with building an electronic device or writing a computer program that would fulfill a particular uh, mission. Now, in all those years, I never had a boss that came up to me and said, John, we need a device that'll do X, Y, and Z. Go throw some parts together and see if, until you find a combination of those parts that will do X, Y, and Z. I never heard anything like that. Instead, my bosses would say, John, go design, go prepare a design that will meet all these requirements. But before I could start building anything, spending money on actually buying hardware and putting it together, the design had to be reviewed and approved. My boss had to be convinced that this design will actually accomplish every part of the mission that he had described to me or that she had described to me. So, the point is, the product was designed with a purpose in mind. Well, you and I were designed with a purpose in mind. God knew, even before He created the world, that you would need a body, a soul, and a spirit in order to accomplish the purpose for which He designed you. I would encourage you to meditate on that some when you have some time alone with the Lord. Just think about that. If He intended for you to simply be a servant who would just follow instructions and nothing else, why would you need a will? If your primary purpose was simply to go and do things for Him, why would you need emotions? The very way He designed you tells you something about what His intentions were. Now, when Jesus walked and ministered on the earth 2,000 years ago, a scribe, which would be roughly uh, equate to a lawyer in our day, a scribe came up to him and said, Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Jesus immediately responded, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. To love the Lord. God created you with everything you would need to love Him with your entire being. Wouldn't you agree that love involves emotions? I think so. Does love require a will? It does. It can't be genuine love unless there is the opportunity to not love. So we needed a will in order for our love to be genuine. When we look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we find that some of them are emotions. Joy and peace, for example. But even the ones which are not strictly emotions in and of themselves, they have motions that correspond to them, that go along with them. 
So here's another thought that supports the idea that we were designed with a purpose in mind. I used to think the body was morally neutral. In fact, I thought this until about three weeks ago, (laughs) that I, I just hadn't given it a whole lot of thought, that the body is morally neutral. In other words, I thought that when someone committed an evil act or a good act, their body wasn't to be commended or blamed. It was the person. It was their will and their mind that had committed the act, good or bad, and the body was just sort of along for the ride, following the instructions. You know, out here in West Texas, a subject that's usually near and dear to our hearts is gun control. I hope I don't lose a bunch of you (laughs) thinking about that too much. But a person, we know a person can use a gun to commit a cold-blooded murder. A person can use a gun to prevent such a murder. But in either case, the gun is completely neutral. I think we all would agree on that. It's the person who's in control of the gun who is the moral agent for good or evil. We never heard yet in our country of a gun being put on trial for murder. Well, that's how I thought about our bodies until just recently. But doesn't it make more sense that if we were designed to love God, to love each other, to love others, that our bodies are not neutral. They're designed for that purpose. And in that case, wouldn't it make sense that if we were harboring unloving thoughts, actions, emotions, that that might actually damage our brain and our body in the process? Think about it this way. Suppose you walked into your doctor's office one day and you said, Doctor, I've been living in peace, love, and joy for several years. I've become patient with others. I'm not easily offended. I'm quick to forgive. But I've been thinking about turning over a new leaf. I've been thinking about trying bitterness and anger and unforgiveness for a while. I just wanted to get your advice on that. Any doctor worth their salt is going to tell you, no, don't do that. Medical science is, and this has nothing to do with Christianity with religion of any sort, medical science is beginning to realize that when we harbor those negative emotions, there will be negative consequences in our physical body. It starts with the brain and the chemicals that it releases which affect the body. God designed us to have those in our mind, in our emotions at all times. If your body was morally neutral, it wouldn't matter whether you had those thoughts or the negative thoughts. Your body would not be harmed by the negative emotions or helped by the positive. But in fact, we are harmed by toxic thinking. Last week, I suggested there was sort of a top-down authority structure or a flow of influence between spirit, soul, and body. It kind of works like this. The Holy Spirit is in charge and influences our spirit. Our spirit influences and is in authority over our soul. And our soul influences and is in authority over our body. Just kind of works top down like that. Well, medical science is getting more and more informed about the fact that if your mind, will, and emotions are full of anger and bitterness, toxic thoughts 
then that will have a negative impact on your body. Here is how Dr. Leaf puts it. The thoughts that you are thinking right now are impacting every cell in your body right now. She says that brain scientists are discovering that toxic thinking increases inflammation in the brain and in the rest of the body and actually causes a malformation in the way that proteins pull together. They don't do it properly when those negative chemical releases are in our bodies. Here's another amazing quotation from her book. Think about the memory I described a moment ago, how the cells come together to form a memory. Dr. Leaf says, if we listen to and believe the enemy's lies, we are actually choosing to process them into physical realities inside our brain. Modern science is catching up with the Bible. The thoughts you're thinking right now are impacting every cell in your body right now. Now, this is where your mind and your will come in. Dr. Leaf introduces a very important concept which she calls superposition. She's borrowed that term from quantum mechanics, which uh, I find very interesting. I had to go to quantum mechanics to find out what it meant before I really grasped what she was saying. Superposition begins with the fact, and I'm going to use, I have to wave my arms a little bit for you to see this. It begins with the fact that your soul is up here above your body in authority. Your mind and your will are in charge of your brain and the rest of your body. So when you're faced with a decision, your mind and your will are able to be in superposition to stand above that decision and look down at the consequences. I can go this way, I can go that way, and your mind and your will can work together and choose a corresponding uh, plan of action. Your will is the boss. Your will is the part of you that decides ultimately which direction you'll go. And that is one of the most profound gifts that God has given us. You're in charge of what you set your mind on. That probably triggered another verse right there. Once you set your mind on something, whether good or bad, your brain's going to respond by building the structure to enable that thought pattern. Now, when you were born again, you received a new heart, a new spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But didn't you find, after you were born again, didn't you soon discover that some of those pre-salvation, old, sinful thoughts and emotions could still haunt you? If all things have become new, how is it that we can still have some of those old crummy thoughts and temptations? Well, I encouraged you last week to kind of think about that. Where do you think those might come from? We might think that it's our old self, uh, what the Bible calls our old man. But in Romans 6, 6, we find that our old man was crucified with him, with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That verse says that our old self was crucified with Christ. That verb crucified in the Greek, it's 
It's in what they call the passive voice, which simply means that the crucifixion described here was something that was done to the old soul. It was done to your old self. It's not something your old self volunteered for. Our old selves would never willingly go through something like that. They want to hang on to, for dear life to anything. But the main point in this verse is, it's done. It's finished. That old you is not coming back. That old you cannot be the source of those old thoughts and temptations. So we can strike that one off the list of possibilities. But this verse goes on to say that the reason your old self was crucified with Jesus is so that the body of sin might be done away with. So this verse is really talking about two different things. It's talking about the old self and then this thing it refers to as the body of sin. The old self is crucified, but the body of sin is still active. That Greek word body is really the word used for the physical body. But the Greek word translated as done away there, and this is the New King James, that's our old friend from 2 Corinthians 3, katargeo, which means it's been rendered idle. It hasn't been destroyed. It hasn't been done away with. It's just sitting there sort of with the plug pulled, that body of sin. It got seriously demoted and stripped of its power when you were born again. Here's how I think this fits in with what we've been talking about. Let's go back to Dr. Leaf's concept of superposition where the mind and the will are above our body looking at the possibilities and making a choice. When your old self was still alive, that body of sin was extremely powerful. It could exert undue influence on your soul, on your mind and your will. Your soul would allow the body to buck the chain of command, and your soul found that it couldn't consistently keep that body under control. The body just said, I want this, I want that. And the soul would say, okay, I'm tired of fighting you. Just, yeah, okay. But one of the great things that happened when you were born again is that your mind, will, and emotions were given back the authority over your body. But that marvelous brain of yours still has some strongholds in it. Before we were born again, and perhaps even after we had trained our brains and the rest of our body to be addicted to certain substances, not necessarily illegal ones. Uh, I have a penchant for chocolate pie (laughs) and things like that. But those physical strongholds in our brains are still there after we're born again. So the reason it's so important to know about these things is so that we can stop fighting a never-ending battle against our old selves because that old self is dead. And then we can turn our attention to where the real battle is, which is this sin in the body that keeps trying to become king of the hill again. You know, Satan can talk to us through our body. And he's very good at when we kind of hear that voice. And I'm not necessarily an audible type voice, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, I want this or I want that. He can mimic the sound of our old self. He speaks to us in first-person pronouns, 
I want this. I want to get back at that person. I really, boy, it just burns me what they did. I'm going to get back at them. That kind of language. First person language. Fortunately, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. If they were, we would have no hope of defeating that in this lifetime. But the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for the pulling down of every stronghold. There's not one left that cannot be pulled down with the weapons we've been given. Yes, the great exchange, which we talk about so often here, that was accomplished in an instant of time. But it did not magically eliminate all the problems. We still have those strongholds that we need to deal with. The exchange restored the proper order of authority, spirit, soul, and body. And, it, and now your new exchange self can, be t- can begin to tell your body and especially your brain the way things are going to be around here. Now the brain may resist that at first, but it will come along when it's told. Dr. Leaf describes how when we engage in the kind of thinking that God designed us to engage in, that the damage to our brains and bodies will actually begin to reverse itself. It takes some time, but the damage begins to repair. I don't have time to go into all those details the way she describes it, but they're available through her books and videos, uh, videos online. By the way, I do need to tell you, Dr. Leaf is not the only brain scientist that's talking this way. I've looked up several others. She's just the only one I've discovered that gets excited pointing out the fact that brain science is now catching up with the Bible. She's really enthusiastic about that. But you know what? It really isn't necessary to understand neuroscience to live the Christian life. The scripture already tells us how to do these things. It just doesn't go into the biology and the brain science behind what it's saying. Here are just three examples of many, and I hope in the weeks ahead you'll find a lot more. I hope this will be a topic of discussion uh, when we get together. Look at Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things. Now that word seek, that is a choice we make. We choose what we will seek. So there's your will and your mind working together. Seek those things which are above. That means spiritual things, things like the Word of God. Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind. Very clear indication of your will at work here. In superposition, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So there is superposition in action your mind and will, choosing what to set your mind upon, and the brain will follow. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate On these things. That's where our spirit and our soul work together. We take spiritual information, we mull it over and over and over. Our spirit gets strengthened, our soul gets strengthened with that stuff. 
The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. There's the result. God of peace will be with you. Colossians 3, 8 through 10. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So yes, the great exchange is already accomplished and it enables our mind to take authority back from our brain and the rest of our body. Because of exchange, you are able to put off things like anger and malice. I pray the Holy Spirit will give us all insight into these and many other verses as we connect them with this truth about spirit, soul, and body. Let me go back to those statements I made last week. For one thing I mentioned or claimed that without a good understanding of spirit, soul, and body and how that all works together, we might end up fighting a lifelong battle against our old sin nature, our old selves, because we won't realize that it's already dead. If we think our old self is still alive, then we're going to think of ourselves as sinner. Sinner is an identity word. It's not an action word, a behavior word. That's an identity When we're born again, we are no longer under the identity of sinner. We are saints. We can sin. But we are saints. But if we don't get this, we'll think of ourselves as just sinners saved by grace and we just have to wait till the end of this life when things will get better. And that thinking can have a huge negative impact on our sense of identity in Christ and our sense of our union with Him. If we mess up, we think, oh man, I just messed up my union with Christ. I'm going to have to earn that back. And that's not at all how it works. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that you are, you are right now, if you're born again, the righteousness of God in Christ. Mike gave us a little sermon on that a few minutes ago. That is a reference to your new exchanged spirit and that truth will never change. It will never change. Yet at the same time, we wage that battle with sin in the flesh that is still trying to get its old job back and its old authority. But the only way sin in the flesh could ever get its old authority back even temporarily is if you make the choice to give it that authority. That's your choice. You can do that. But take comfort in the knowledge that God knows you're engaged in that battle. He knew you would be engaged in that battle the rest of this life. It will get better and better, but it's always going to be a battle. That's what the Bible calls the good fight of faith. God designed you to fight that battle. He's given you the spiritual weapons to win that battle. He's not mad at you or displeased with you because those things are still there. And I think he must be saying yes every time we use the weapons he gave us to knock a few more bricks off those old strongholds. 
But even if that battle gets you down every now and then, just know that every time God looks at you, He sees the very righteousness of God in Christ when He sees you. I also mentioned last week that this truth about spirit, soul, and body helps explain why there had to be an Old Testament before there could be a New Testament. Now, this could be a whole sermon series in itself, but with just what we've covered so far, you'll be able to see the outline of this. Once Adam and Eve ate of that deadly fruit and their spirits died, God could no longer relate to them on a spiritual level. He had to relate to them on a fleshly level. And what that means is soul and body level. Sometimes those two combined are called flesh in the Scripture, particularly in Paul's writings. So Adam and Eve were purely soulish, earthy beings from that moment and for the rest of their lives. And every one of their descendants, including us, were born just like that. Soulish with dead spirits. So during that long period of time, from the moment that Adam and Eve's spirits died until the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit, which restored the human spirit back to its place, during those thousands of years, God had to work with people on a fleshly level. Now if we go to the book of Hebrews, we'll see that it describes the Old Covenant including the law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments, including those animal sacrifices, all those rules of behavior. All of that was God's grace in providing a way for dead-spirited people to draw near to Him. That's the only way they could do it is by following all those rules. God also gave those things to them as a shadow of the better things that were coming with Christ. But once Jesus died and was resurrected and the Holy Spirit began indwelling believers, those old fleshly things no longer apply to believers. For a believer to go back to the law is like putting new wine in old wineskins. Even worse, a believer could be in danger of actually trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus that was shed for, for him or her when they do that. Now I say that, some of you know how I was caught in that bondage until I learned about exchange. Thank you, Lord. So if you want to know why I'm so profoundly grateful about this revelation about spirit, soul, and body, it's because that is the revelation that finally helped me distinguish Old Covenant versus New. Old Covenant's for the old creation. New Covenant is for the new creation. And never the twain should meet. They do not mix. Until a Christian gets that revelation, they're vulnerable to falling into the trap of trying to go back under the law and live that way. They won't realize that old covenant does does not apply to them. Last week I also made a passing comment that it might even be difficult to understand what true worship is without having a solid understanding of spirit, soul, and body. We've seen that authority structure. Holy Spirit, our spirit, soul, body. And the flow of influence among them. That's how it's supposed to be. The Hebrew word for worship in the Old Testament 
has one simple meaning, and that is to bow down. That's all it means. When one human being would bow down to another, that was called the word shachah, and it just simply means to bow down, but it's the word used for worship throughout the Old Testament. The Greek word in the New Testament means the very same thing. That's how it's supposed to be. So the act of bowing down is like saying, I recognize your authority over me and I submit to you. So the Bible's definition of worship is the act of submitting ourselves to God. So with this definition, we can see that worship is not something we set aside time to do. It's the way we live. It's the way we should be living every moment. So, for example, if you're a Christian and either the devil or an old stronghold in your brain that hasn't been fully knocked down yet hands you a thought which says, I'm just a no-good sinner, then you have a choice to make. Your mind and will are in superposition over that thought. You can choose to take that thought captive by submitting to what God says about you and say, I thank you and praise you, Father. I believe you when you say that I am the righteousness of God in Christ. That is worship because you've just submitted to what God said rather than what the enemy is trying to tell you. The alternative is to turn away from his truth and indulge in that negative thinking But since God didn't design your body to handle that well, it will immediately begin to affect every cell in your body in a negative way. Well, this concludes the message called Thoughts on Walking in the Spirit. If you'll notice, I've hardly used the phrase walking in the Spirit the last two weeks. And yet everything in the last two weeks was about how to walk in the Spirit. I hope it's been a practical thing for you. Your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions, your soul sits in between your body and your spirit. That's where the big decisions are made. You can choose to listen to your spirit, and that's called walking in the Spirit. It's as simple as that. Or you can choose to set your mind on that constant stream of information that's coming into your body and your mind from the world. When you set your mind on things above, by definition, you're walking in the Spirit. Lord, I ask you to turn this information into revelation that will penetrate deeply into our spirits and our minds. Help us to combine it with faith so that it will enable us to live this abundant life that you paid so dearly to give us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.